The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, October 9th, 2022. Rios, thank you. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter, with the 14th Digest of this second volume, covering Monday, October 3rd through Friday, October 7th, 2022. Movie Monday. Returning to the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, I finally watched, for the first time, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. This is the seventh installment from 1994. In many ways, you could look at it as a celebration of the first movie that was released in 1984. You have Wes Craven returning, and you have some of the actors returning as well, including Heather Langenkamp, Robert Englund is back, John Saxon is back, um, and you have Wes Craven playing himself, Robert Shea, the founder of New Line, playing himself, Mariana Maddalena, the producer, and in just small cameos, uh, a few, very few of the actors from other movies. So this is a standalone film. It is described as a meta slasher film. And it's not supposed to be in the continuity of the original films, but of course, you know, you can, you can make it so. And the whole idea is that Freddy Krueger has found a way to invade the real world, um, and he's haunting the film crew set, and he's haunting actors, and he's haunting their lives, um, because as Wes Craven describes it later in the movie, um because they killed him off in the sixth installment that and ended the franchise, that kind of freed this demonic spirit. But if they make another movie, they can trap him back into the the movies, I guess you could say. Um, Freddy is portrayed as being darker, more menacing. Instead of four finger knives, he has five. His look is totally changed. It's It's updated. Um, he wears a trench coat. He's not as funny, even though he does have some comedic moments. And uh, all to say, it's it's an odd movie. It's <laughs> When I read that it was going to be this kind of meta thing and that the actors were basically going to play themselves, and, you know, there are scenes with Heather talking about her career as Nancy and Robert talking about his career as Freddie and the two of them... In, you know, in an interview, uh, the two of them meeting together and, and, and talking about Freddy. I mean, it's all just very weird. So I was I was in it. I was like, okay, this sounds very compelling. Let's let's watch it. And I think in 1994, it probably was compelling and different. Um, it doesn't hold up. Uh, you know, even though I was watching it, it was like, mm, it doesn't quite hold up, you know, how many decades later. I did like that Freddy returned to his more creepy, relatively quiet self. His new look looked a little plasticky for me, um, but at least he's back to being defeatable and he's not all-powerful. He's still afraid of fire, which is kind of cool. There are some fun things. There are some things that I liked about the movie. Obviously, any callbacks to any of the other movies, whether it was dialogue, whether it was actual scenes, uh, near the end, they they basically recreate the ending of of the first movie which i liked the interview scene is really fun where you get to see robert england being 
you know, jovial and, and he's dressed up as Freddy, but he's dressed up as the Freddy that we know from the original movies. Um, and it makes you think, you know, what is Heather thinking of when she sees Freddy take over this interview that was supposed to be about her and she's playing herself, but yet, you know, she is, uh, her character of Nancy and who she was in this movie is more famous than she'll ever be, you know? So I, I, that had to really kind of mess with her head. But it it works on a lot of levels, um, which, which is, you know, I really appreciated that. It doesn't start out well, and the ending gets a little too formulaic, the way they defeat him. I was like, eh, I, th- I wish they would have came up with something a little more creative. The kid, her son in the movie, is awful. Um, his name is Miko Hughes. He's the same kid in Kindergarten Cop that has the famous line, boys have a penis, girls have a vagina. And he's been in other stuff as well. But in this movie, some of his reactions and some of his screams and his reactions to Freddy, and I get it, he's young and he has to do a lot of important things. I wish they wouldn't have made it so much about the kid because he's not good. Um, it felt a little long at times. Some of the effects don't hold up. There's a sequence where they're crossing a highway, which is kind of painful to watch. Um, when they were looking at the script at one point, because the script is actually part of the movie. Even I was like, okay, how much more of this script do they actually have? Because, you know, I'm ready for it to end. It's totally better than Freddy's Dead. I will say that. Is it better than Dream Master or Dream Child? I'm not sure, and I'm also not going to try to like watch all three of them again to, to make that comparison because I'm doing very little research on all of these things. And um, I enjoyed it while I was watching it because there's something more to it than just the slasher aspect, but I did find myself looking to see how much more of this movie there was. You know, I was like, okay, can we get to the ending already? Um, at some point, I will see the documentary Never Sleep Again, maybe when I wrapped up all of this stuff. But right now, I was like, nah, I don't need to watch it now. In terms of the larger watch of this franchise, though, I, I am glad I saw it. And like I said, it is better than the sixth installment. And I feel like you have to watch at least the first one if you're going to watch this. Um, I can't say there are a lot of connections outside of a few little things to some of the other movies because Wes Craven was pretty adamant. You could kind of get, you get the feeling that he's like, those movies don't exist. Um, but, um, I'm glad I watched them all and then watched this because it does give me an, more of an appreciation for the movie. Uh, one of the things I find really interesting, this movie is 1990, from 1994 Wes Craven's Scream is 1996, and in those two years, he made a movie in Scream that is that is way better than this one. So, uh, I don't know, I guess he was more invested, it's a whole new property, certainly the actors were stronger, and he wanted to mess around with the conceits and with the tropes of horror movies, obviously, if you know Scream, right? So, he was able to pull a little more out of it. And uh, it's certainly interesting to see Skeet Ulrich do his best Johnny Depp impression in that movie. Um, Yeah, so just in two years, we go from New Nightmare to Scream. 
Uh, I have already seen all the Scream movies. I think I might have talked about them at some point. I am not going to go back and do another deep dive on those. So next up is Freddy vs. Jason, which I have seen before once. I know that it is not good. There are parts of it. It's almost like a Looney Tunes show. Um, but, you know, this is what I'm doing. I'm watching the Nightmare <laughs> franchise So for now. Um so that's what I'll do. I'm going to watch that one next. I did want to pop in some feedback here real quick. Uh, ben Lyons uh, talked about the October 2nd uh, Digest and said, reacted to my comments about Hellraiser on Hulu and said, Peter, I'm catching up on my podcasts. Horror is my thing. I love the first Hellraiser as one of my all-time favorite horror films. I beg you, though. Do not fully dive into the franchise. It gets unconscionably bad. The second is good for the lore. The third is good for the Cenobite design. Then please, I beg you, skip to the Hulu reimagining of the concept. Yeah, I I don't know if Hellraiser is going to be my next franchise, but I'll, I'll watch the bad ones too because that's part of the fun of it, you know? Same thing with comics. They're good, they're bad. Um, but I got to get through them all. So let me get through the Nightmare franchise first, and then we'll see which franchise I'm going to dig into next. Timeline Trivia Tuesday. What? What does that mean? So I am merging... My concept for Timeline Tuesday, which is a look at comic history and comic anniversaries, with trivia, which I have been doing uh, a few other times in a few other digests, where I do trivia questions based on the anniversary of some comic. Now, I've been doing the 40th anniversary because it was leading up to, um, well, the the Friday segment for this digest, which is October 7th, which is my 40th anniversary of collecting comics. I'll talk about that in Friday. Um, so what I was doing in August and September is going back 40 years, August of 1982, September of 1982, and I did a few trivia questions. Well, I decided to go bigger. So I've been having fun with that. I'm mixing trivia and comics history. That gives us Timeline Trivia Tuesday. And it's a way to spotlight some other comic history. So usually I do six questions because it's all based on my comic trivia game, which is based on Trivial Pursuit. Uh, six questions, one per decade or one per anniversary. So I have a question for 10 years ago. A question for 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60 years ago. And then the categories are based on my trivia game. So the order that I put these questions in um, is based on the anniversary. So we're going to start with 10 years ago. And then I will tell you what the category is uh, when I ask the question. So see how you do. No cheating. Here we go. 10 years ago, October 2012, the category is events. With the end of the Avengers vs. X-Men event, Marvel relaunches their entire line 10 years ago in a response to DC's New 52 relaunch of, of 2011. One of their flagship titles was Uncanny Avengers, a mix of members of the Avengers and the X-Men. From that first issue cover of Uncanny Avengers number 1, 
by John Cassidy. Name the six initial members of this new group. See, we get some trivia, we get some comic history. Okay, 20 years ago, October of 2002, the category is characters or creators. Batman 608 hit the stands in October 2002, the first part of the Hush storyline written by Jeff Loeb. It is drawn by Jim Lee, of course, and the question is, Jim Lee would follow up the Hush storyline with a 12-issue run on Superman entitled For Tomorrow. Who was the writer for the Superman story? Little bait and switch there, right? You thought it was going to be about Batman Hush. Nope, it's about Superman for Tomorrow. Okay. 30 years ago, October of 1992, this is a geography question. In Fantastic Four 371 from 1992, Johnny Storm is reunited with his scroll wife, Lyja, while battling her, the Power Scroll, and Devos the Devastator, Johnny panics and engages his Nova Flame Blast, setting fire to what Marvel location in New York City? Let's go 40 years ago, October of 1982, to Powers, Paraphernalia, but it also, also includes Animals. In Dreadstar number 1, issue number 1, one of Vanth's companions is a cybernetic telepath known as Willow. She is blind and sees through a telepathic link that she shares with her pet Monk. What's the name of the little creature? And Monk being not a monk from like a seminary, but like a, a monk meaning monkey. 50 years ago, October of 1972, this is a continuity slash history question. World's Finest Comics 215 in 1972 reunited the Super Sons, Superman Jr. and Batman Jr., now as young adults in their third comic book appearance. Which issue of World's Finest Comics was their first appearance? And finally, 60 years ago, October of 1962, this is Hypertime, which is basically a potpourri, Shortly after their cartoon premiere in September of 1962, the Jetsons found their way into comics in October of 1962 and ran for 36 issues until 1970. Which publisher were they under? Okay, here we go. Here are your answers. Ten years ago, Avengers vs. X-Men, the Marvel Now Line uh, launching with Uncanny Avengers number one. The six members are Captain America, Wolverine, Scarlet Witch, Rogue, Thor, and Havoc. Those are the six members uh, that made up the group, at least in that first issue. From 20 years ago, Batman Hush by Jim Lee was followed up with Superman for Tomorrow, written by Brian Azzarello. 30 years ago, Fantastic Four 371, you have Johnny Storm going Nova in the middle of New York City, setting fire to Empire State University, which was the big cliffhanger of that issue. That was the issue that had the all-red cover, and it was also uh, raised, like, I forget what they call that, but it, it, it had Johnny, you know, going Nova, and it was all red, 
and you could feel, you know, the raised form of Johnny Storm. All right, 40 years ago, 1982, Dreadstar number one, Willow, is a telepath that uh, she shares with her pet monk named Rainbow. 50 years ago, the Super Sons had their third appearance in World Fi World's Finest Comics 215. Their first appearance is from 1965 in World's Finest Comics issue 154. And I know, first appearances, issue numbers are, they're hard, so don't feel bad. I, I hate them myself, but um, it, was, it was too good to pass up. And then finally, 60 years ago, October of 62, uh, talking about the Jetsons, being uh, released as a cartoon series and then shortly right after as a comic book series and it was published by Gold Key or Western Publishing Company. There you go, a little bit of history, a little bit of trivia. How did you do? By authority of the mystic guardians of the universe on the far distant planet Oa, Al Jordan test pilot becomes... The Green Lantern, a cosmic crusader whose magical power ring at his bidding accomplishes the impossible. In his continuing fight against interplanetary evil, Green Lantern, Guardian of the Galaxy. Wednesday Comics Wednesday, Part 5. And as that intro clip clued you in, this time around we're looking at the Green Lantern strip by... Kurt Busiek, Joe Quinones, and Pat Brusso on colors. By the way, at the end of that clip, they call him Green Lantern, Guardian of the Galaxy or Galaxies. I'm not quite sure what he says. But that would be two years prior to the first appearance of Marvel's Guardians in 1969. How about that? So anyway, Wednesday Comics... This is the 12-issue anthology series in the broadsheet format that I am taking a look at every three digests. This one is fairly straightforward, fairly simple. It's Hal Jordan. It's Coast City. It's got an astronaut friend from the past that gets turned into an alien, leading to some flashbacks about their friendship, Green Lantern beating back an alien invasion, and then Hal going back to his typical playboy self, story over. Now, because this is a standalone story, Busiek and company decided to set this in a different decade, evoking the 1960s. And that's the thing that kind of you immediately come to in that first strip. And then there's a narration in the first strip, call it the Jet Age, the Atomic Age, the Space Age. Not to mention some references along the way, including things like Dean Martin and um, Carol Ferris sporting a very Jackie O kind of look. In Busiek's own words, he says, Every day that I was working on the strip, I would be sitting on the floor of my office with a full-size reproduction of Leonard Starr's on-stage funny pages from the early 1960s. Partly that was because Star is one of the absolute greats in the genre, and partly it was because the Green Lantern strip is set in the 1960s, and we wanted to capture that feeling. In our case, it's right down to the lettering. We're using a font based on Ben Oda's lettering, and Oda was the guy who lettered on stage. Part of that is because Joe Quinones is so good at doing real people interacting 
that we wanted to do a story that had a lot of storytelling from the Kennedy era, so why not go back and emulate that to some degree? Now, one other aspect about Busiek's uh, writing in this particular strip is that it feels like it's working in threes. So you have strip number one, two, three, which is all kind of like set up, four, five, six, which is a flashback part of the story. Seven, eight, nine is a fight against his friend who got turned into this alien probe. And then 10 and 11 and 12 is fighting the invasion and then eventually the wrap up. Art-wise, I'm fairly certain this is early in Joe Quinones' career. And overall, my general thoughts on this strip. It is beautifully drawn. It's well-crafted uh, in terms of its artwork and pacing and, and how the story unfolds makes sense and um, feels like it's, it's, it works a, a, as a 12-issue narrative. When you first look at that artwork, it definitely has a new frontier feel. Maybe that's because of the story as well and because it's set in the 60s. It also says in strip number one, it was a time for new things, new frontiers. And new frontier was earlier in the 2000s, so you can see how this could play a part of that. Um, even the way Green Lantern's costume is drawn with the cut-off shoulders and the trunks going to the thighs, totally evoking Darwin Cook to me. And that's kind of funny because I felt that same way with the Dead Man strip, and that creative team did work with Darwin Cook. It has um, very much the same quality. The Dead Man strip is looser, it's more experimental, and the coloring on the JLA uh, uh, GL strip is different. It's brighter, and it's also used to shape the line work, so it gives a, um, a much different feel. The Dead Man coloring was a little flatter. So beyond the initial taking in of the artwork and, and seeing those references, whether they were intentional or not, getting the story, um, ultimately, unfortunately, <laughs> it kind of flattens out for me. It doesn't really go anywhere truly exciting after you get familiar with the first uh, couple strips. You know, what you see in those first few strips is pretty much what you get by the end. So I can see the influence that Busiek is talking about. I can see how it affects both the story and the art and the page composition. But then it just means that the story becomes typical fare. And if he wants it to focus on the interaction between the characters, that's okay. I, I get that. I, I totally see that. But then it doesn't really elevate much more beyond that for me. The cliffhangers are fairly standard. They're not too high concept. It's a low-stakes adventure strip, and that let me down by the end, unfortunately. I don't hate it. It's not bad. I just really don't see myself going back to it ever again. So... Here are a couple of my notes strip by strip. Uh, issue number one, you get the setting as I talked about. You can see it in the clothing, the hairstyles, the bustle of energy, in the lounge marquee. It all feels very much like Watchmen 4 when, you know, those nerdy scientists are going into the bestiary and letting loose and drinking. Uh, Carol Ferris is there. She's mad at Hal Jordan, which is typical. Uh, their friend Tom is there. Uh, you know, first page, great. You know, total setup, 
leads you into the world. Awesome. Page two opens with a one panel um, depiction of Green Lantern versus the Volga Jetmen from Russia. I really like their designs. It's kind of like Adam Strange meets the Rocket Reds meets uh, Atomic Knights. I kind of wanted the story to be about them by the time I was done. Page uh, three or strip three, that's where uh, Hal Jordan's friend Joe Dillon gets turned into a space crab. He's kind of like a space crab mixed with the dire wraiths from Marvel. Uh, Carol Ferris sporting her Jackie O look. Uh, four, five, and six, as I mentioned, it's all flashback to Hal and Joe meeting at NASA. And Joe tells him the story about how there are these Texas, Texas Rangers and they had an adventure with a riot, but they only needed one Ranger for one riot because they're so cool. Um, then you get the fight between Hal and Joe as he's turned into the crab. In strip number seven, it looks like Joe Quinona's drew the creative team in that first panel, which is kind of fun. Hal is kind of reckless in his fight. You know, he saves people, but he doesn't necessarily stop to make sure they're okay. You know, making it seem like he's very early on, making him seem very brash. Um, The end of the fight, we find out that this turning into this alien is because he's a probe of sorts for an invasion And then Hal Jordan takes on the invasion because, like the Texas Rangers, one riot, one ranger. Well, in this case, one invasion, one lantern. So that's him learning something from his friend, taking his story to heart. And then strip 11, the invasion is defeated. This is the strip that I felt is reaching for the possibility of what this format could be. It's a full shot of Green Lantern battling the invasion, and then there are all these... Uh, smaller panels to give some other details in the battle. And I thought, oh, wow, look, you know, Quinones is breaking away from the typical panel structure of the previous pages, and that's nice, and I wish he would have done that more. And then we get to the final strip, and we all we get back to where we were in the beginning. Not much has changed. If I continue my ranking of all the strips, I still think Commandy is right up there at the top, Batman and Dead Man are tied, and I guess I have to say that Green Lantern and Superman are, t- are tied here on, quote-unquote, the bottom, I mean, because they're not bad. They're just not the ones that I gravitated to, you know? I, I think I prefer the artwork in Green Lantern to Lee Bermejo's Superman, not because it's any better, it's just that's the kind of artwork I enjoy more, at least so far, in this strip, so... Both of the stories um, were a little bit of a letdown, but this one just became so plain and pedestrian that um, it, it just setting it in the 60s wasn't enough for me. I wanted a, or trying to evoke those early comic strips that Busiek talked about. That's great, but ultimately not pushing the boundaries of the format was kind of like um, was disappointing for me. And maybe that's unfair. Maybe it's unfair that I think that every creative team is going to do that. But I guess it's something I want to see. All right. Next strip in Three Digests, we will return with Metamorpho by Neil Gaiman, Mike Allred, Laura Allred on colors, and Nate Picos on letters. Let's wrap up this Wednesday segment with recommendations for the week. 
of October 5th, starting with DC Comics' Gotham City Year One limited series by Tom King, Phil Hester, Eric Gapster, the definitive origin of Gotham City, going back two generations before Batman, featuring Slam Bradley and the early Wayne family. $4.99. Looking forward to that. From Dark Horse, check out both Earth Divers Book One, Kill Columbus, for $3.99, and the 40 Seconds trade paperback. Uh, 40 Seconds is by Jeremy Hahn and Christopher Mitten, collecting the five-issue Comixology series for $19.99. Uh, science fiction fantasy adventure about, uh, about a team of science explorers traveling through a series of alien gateways to answer a distress call, only to be haunted by a vast, unstoppable, and dangerous horde. Um, amazing truths lie at the final gate, if only they can make it in time. And Earth Divers is by Stephen Graham Jones, uh, David Gianfelice, and Raphael Albuquerque on the covers. Taking place in two, uh, 2112, and it's the apocalypse, rivers are receding, oceans rising, civilization is crumbling, humanity has given up hope, except for a group of outcast indigenous survivors who have discovered a time travel portal, and they decide to try to figure out where the world took a sharp turn for the worst, leading them to wanting to go back in time to 1492 and kill Christopher Columbus and stopping any discovery of the new world. That sounds uh, amazing. Um, from Image Comics, we have Kaya Number 1 by Wes Craig, $3.99. I talked about this in one of the, well, I guess it was the first issue of the Image Anthology. It was one of the few that I really enjoyed about a young pair of siblings um, after the destruction of their village and how they have to travel to, to a new safe haven before an all-powerful empire tries to destroy their home. Fanographics slash them all hardcover by Antoine Maillard by twenty nine uh, for for twenty nine dollars and ninety nine cents. This is a tribute to nineteen eighties horror cinema, American horror cin cinema, when a tranquil town is upended by the arrival of a serial killer, and then the story goes from there. From Scout Comics, we have the Impossible Jones trade paperback volume one, Grin Gritty. Carl Kiesel, David Hahn, collecting the four-issue series for $19.99, all about a thief pretending to be a superhero in a high-stakes, high-wire balancing act, and uh, it's all very campy and fun and um, very mischievous. And then from Tomorrow's Publishing, we have The Team-Up Companion by Michael Urey, $39.95, taking a look at DC's Brave and the Bold, DC Comics Presents, Marvel Team-Up, Marvel 2-in-1, and other team-up titles. And also look for back issue 139 uh, for $10.95, taking a look at Marvel's second bananas. Characters like Doc Samson, Jack of Hearts, uh, Nighthawk, Star Fox, Wood God, The Shroud, Stingray, Wondar, and more. There you go. Those are your recommendations for the week of October 5th. Do 
Do you like comics? The 1960s? How about middle-aged gay couples gossiping about their neighbors? Then you'll love Checkered Past. A loving examination of DC's GoGo Check branded comic magazines published from February 1966 to August 1967. I'm Dr. Bob. And I'm Dr. Husband. And each week we'll be your hosts on a trippy tour through mid-century four-color madness. Checkered Past. Available wherever fine podcasts are downloaded for free. dressed up in costumes around the city today, but you don't have your days mixed up. Do not worry. It's not Halloween just yet. New York Comic Con, though, is back in town. Yeah, this is the East Coast's largest pop culture convention. It's opened at the Javits Center and CBS News. John Diaz, he's it is all here. Everything. Like sensory overload. No matter what fandom you're for, you've got it here. As soon as you step foot in Javits Center, you've got the greatest Comic-Con festival right here in the Big Apple. So much to be passionate about. And we have got in costume around the city today. New York Comic-Con is back in town. The East Coast's largest pop culture convention opens today at the Javits Center. CBS 2's John Diaz has this on his calendar for years. He joins us now from the Javits Center with more on what's in store for fans. Is today. this true, John? Hey, John. <laughs> kind of true, yes. I was very excited when I was assigned this story. Uh, good morning. To the streets of Manhattan, thousands of superheroes and villains are being spotted. You'll see them. Comic-Con is back in town at the Javits Center in CBS Tuesday. filled Park. with even more characters than usual. The costumes mean they're camera-ready, and you know they have to strike the pose. New York Comic-Con is back for four days of fun at the Javits Center. It's billed as the biggest comic and pop culture event on the East Coast. New York Comic Con is back again. Thursday, October 6th, kicked off the event. I hope everyone enjoys the weekend and is also safe. Uh, I'll probably drop any big news items from the convention in next week's digest if anything catches my eye. So all those news clips, that was for Thursday's October 6th segment. And now let's wrap up this week's digest for uh, the week. This is Friday, October 7th. And today is a special day because it marks my 40th year of comic book collecting. 40 years. I know I've talked about this before, but I wanted to commemorate on the actual day as well. So forgive me if you heard this story before. If you haven't heard... My personal comic book journey began as a kid, um, a kid that liked to read everything from an early age, and comics were, of course, just one more way to fire all of that imagination. I was one of those kids that my family had to tell um, that I should go outside instead of staying in all the time. I have two very strong memories as a kid when it comes to comics because I don't really remember remember a lot from my childhood. One is that I used to read a lot of Richie Rich comics and two is that my older uncle gave me a beer box full of comics because I guess they thought I would enjoy them and this box of comics was full of Bronze Age era comics, mostly Marvel, and most of them had the covers torn off because they were purchased uh, at a local farmer's market. And I think, I think I have a memory of visiting that market and seeing all of these comics just on the side of one of the vendors, just laying flat, some of them with torn off covers. And um, I, I don't know, I, I think that's a memory, but I'm not sure. So those two memories are pretty strong. Um, my Uncle Freddie, 
used to talk about owning a lot of that early Marvel Age stuff. Doctor Strange was one of his favorite characters. I found out years later that my mom used to read Little Lulu comics as a kid. So I decided to do some research to jog my memory. And this is not a complete list, but here are some of the comics that were in that collection that was handed to me. X-Men 130, with the cover half torn off. That would be the first appearance of Dazzler during the Dark Phoenix Saga. Incredible Hulk 244, the It Lives issue. A torn Savage She-Hulk number one, some Shang-Chi Master of Kung Fu. A bunch of issues for that. Conan, I'm sure there were Spider-Man issues, Fantastic Four, etc. From DC, I had things like Superman 344, with Superman against a vampire and Frankenstein's monster. DC Comics Presents with uh, number 18 with Zatanna, Flash 282 with the with Green Lantern, some Legion issues, Wonder Woman issues, uh, a bunch of other stuff. And then an odd thing like Starstream, a couple issues of Starstream, which was a sci-fi magazine from Western Publishing. So all of these comics were released around the time of November 1979. And I know there are more that are probably from earlier, but that makes me think, okay, then this box of comics was probably a birthday gift because in 1979, I turned seven years old. So that would all make sense. The pile of Richie Rich comics that I still have to this day, they are all dated the earliest um, in 1981. So I assume that the box, the beer box full of comics came first, and then I got these Richie Rich comics. Um, these are the things that, that kicked off um, my enjoyment, my love of comics, and then, of course, wherever we went, I would try to seek out more comics. But the month that I became a true comic book collector, that is October of 1982. Hence why I'm celebrating 40, 40 years. In my collection, I have a handful of comics from that actual month, most of them still the original copies. And I guess the reason why I make the distinction is because these comics I picked out on my own. They weren't hand-me-downs. Um, I picked them up off the rack at the time of release because I liked the cover or for some other reason. So October of 1982 means I was nine years old. And those issues include Justice League of America 210, Incredible Hulk 279, Marvel Team Up 125, Marvel 2 and 196, and Captain Carrot and His Amazing Zoo Crew number 11. Those are the books from October of 1982 that still resonate with me to this day. And I just know that that's uh, I that's the month that I was starting to pick up comics and I would continue every week or every month and it would just grow from there. So Justice League of America 210, that is the earliest. If my research is right, it is dated October 7th, hence why I'm celebrating on this particular day. Of all the issues, the Justice League issue had to be replaced the Incredible Hulk issue was totally destroyed, and um, all the rest I still have. So uh, I don't talk about that Incredible Hulk issue a lot because I don't have it anymore, but uh, I realized that, yeah, I have to include that in that mix. And that's it. That's the start of my journey. My personal timeline of comic book collecting begins 
October of 1982. So along with this little celebration here on the Digest, of course, because I don't already have too many reading projects or too many unfinished projects on my hands, I wanted to go back and read how that journey began. I've done it before, either on Twitter or I think I was even doing on doing it on the Tower podcast. But I really want to go through month to month, pick out all those comics that I picked out on the rack that particular month and talk about it. Talk about them, you know. I want to see what kind of things I learned and how my love of comics grew and how my love of trivia grew and why I loved certain things and certain characters and when did I first come across a, a, a character? When did I first come across a writer? When did I see uh, an artist's first work or, you know, first work for me? That autobiographical sense is really strong and I would I think I really want to try to do it, which means I have to go through my collection Ugh, my poor knees, um, and find everything, you know, because obviously they're all spread out. So there's a great scene in High Fidelity that is kind of like one of the impulses for all of this, where the lead character pulls out his record collection after a breakup and spews it out all over the floor and puts it into piles, but they're not alphabetical, they're not chronological, they're autobiographical. So how his record collection grew and how his music tastes grew is very much what I'm thinking about here, you know. Because I have records, uh, written records, of all of my comic book purchases going back to 1986, maybe 1985. So not quite from the beginning, but very close. So I know which comics were purchased off the rack at the time and which were purchased as back issues. So this is something that I got um, a response probably years ago from Chris Beckett, who asked me to talk about my earliest purchases. Purchases, And this is exactly, I think I want to do this. Probably the easiest thing to do is to make it a website post, not a podcast. It just makes things easier. I can post them faster. Um, I don't have to spend time podcasting about each issue. I can just do quick notes, bullet points, quick reactions, list off things. And then the good thing is, is it's all, all searchable on my website as well. So it makes for easier reference for myself. Um, probably dumping it on the site is not everybody's particular choice of how they like to absorb my content. But, you know, I, I just think it might be easiest. And who knows, maybe down the road I can include it in some podcasting. But a month-to-month -month recounting of new books at the time. And then probably like a subsection where I talk about, oh, here's all the books that I got years later as back issues. I just think that could be really great. And it can go a long way to explain my love for, well, not only comics, but DC, funny animal books, Richie Rich, George Perez, The Titans, Legion, Jose Garcia Lopez. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. So 40 years 40 years of comic book collecting. Will I make it to 50? 50? Who knows? All right, that's the end of this digest. Email me, peter at thedailyrios.com. Let me know if you think I'm crazy about doing that project. Uh, go to the website, The Daily Rios. Visit The Daily Rios Instagram. My Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Send me some promos. Send me some book club recommendations. 
Um, I'll have an update about the book club, uh, possibly in the next digest. Um, review me on your favorite podcast catcher. This has been the Daily Rios episode 583 for Sunday, October 9th, 2022. Talk to you soon. I think the only way to stop him is to make another movie. Now, I swear to you, I'm going to stay by this computer and keep writing until I finish the script, but when that time comes, you're going to have to make a choice. Choice? What kind of choice? Whether or not you're willing to play Nancy one last time.